and welcome to Strip Search, the comic strip podcast. We are here in August of 2019 with our latest episode. I am Pete Chianka, and I am here with Dave London. Hi, Dave. Hey, Pete. I should mention I'm not actually here with Dave London. We are speaking at the same time, but we are actually in separate locations. Isn't that correct, Dave? That's right. I'm actually on the holodeck. <laughs> How are things up there? It's good. We have this whole Klingon genre going on. <laughs> yeah, this is. Never let it be said that Strip Search does not embrace the latest technologies. Uh, this one involving uh, the two of us being able to sit in separate locations wearing whatever we want, and I don't need to explain why I'm in my pajamas at 3.30 on a Sunday afternoon. We are here with a terrific guest today, Mr. Bob Eckstein, who is a writer, a cartoonist, the world's foremost expert on snowmen. Basically, you name it, he's done it. We're very excited to talk to him. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask Dave about some comics-related activity he partook in this weekend. Am I right, Dave? So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I was involved so much as a participant in that I took the kids to a Fan Expo in Boston. It's Boston Comic Con. They call it Fan Expo now. And it is just huge. It's at the Boston Convention Center downtown. And it's it's what most people think of when they think of these conventions, just a gazillion people selling their wares, artists uh, selling uh, their artwork, people dressed up, the whole cosplay thing going on, um, a lot of uh, television and um and stars from the movies who were are there signing autographs and uh it was it was the kids had a great time i mean the best part of it was uh all three of my kids they range in age from 10 to 15 they all loved it we had a fantastic time great day in the city and it goes all three days by the time this uh, podcast comes out it'll be over but people should know that uh, these uh comic conventions are well worth their time for fans of the of the genre and in a couple of months, we're going to have the uh, Massachusetts Independent Comics Expo, where we uh, visited last year and had a great time. And, and we're hoping to talk to some of the organizers for that. Make sure to tune in next month when hopefully we will have uh, all the information you need about attending the MICE conference. We also want to remind you to check out Comic Strip Cartoonist. They are working on their next edition. And you could go to our website, petpeevescomic.com, to find a link back to them and find out everything you need to know about comic strip cartoonist. Anything else I'm forgetting here, Dave? Uh, I think that's it, Pete. Um, I would just maybe uh, tell everyone that uh, this new technology, to the extent that there's any kind of cracks or sort of uh, it sounds, if there's anything that doesn't quite come through, we're just testing out some new technology. So hopefully any kinks will be worked out. Yes. Any, yeah. We promise, uh, you know, we will fix all of that in post. So, Hopefully you will have no idea how badly this went when we first recorded it. So stay tuned, and in just a few seconds, we'll be back with Bob Eckstein. Hey, everybody. We are back on Strip Search, the comic strip podcast. I'm Pete Chianka, here, as I have mentioned, with Dave London. Hey, Pete. And... We are ready to introduce our very special guest. We are really excited about this one. Um, we have with us today the uh, cartoonist, writer, snowman expert, editor of uh, several excellent comic collections, including his latest, The Ultimate Cartoon Book of Book Cartoons. See, that's a, kind of a, a mouthful. Um, Mr. Bob Eckstein. Welcome, Bob. 
Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Oh, we're so we're so happy to have you on, and it's it, we actually have the ultimate cartoon book of book cartoons uh, sitting here on on our desk in front of us, purchased and, by our our very own Dave London, and, and it is a book. <laughs> it is. Oh, thank you. It, it is. Yeah, that was a nice compliment you gave him there, Dave, <laughs> calling it a calling it a book. But um, it, it strikes me uh, the and now you've done how many of these have you put together at this stage? Well, that was the first of a series. We have one more coming up um, in October called Everyone's a Critic. Yep. And, again, it's a lot of the same people from the first book. And we plan to do more in the future. But I just started this relationship with uh, Princeton Architectural Press last year. That's terrific. And I, I can't imagine anything really more uh, fun but also kind of difficult than narrowing down, you know, great cartoons on, on interesting topics. Has that been a challenge? Yeah, well, I got about hundreds and hundreds of cartoons to choose from, and some of the cartoonists involved actually um, gave me so many. For instance, Sam Gross, who I've become friends with, I went to his studio, and he picked out about 800 cartoons that had to do with bookstores and books, and together we narrowed it down. And uh, that was the case with a few cartoonists who gave me so many great selections to choose from. So I'm very, very confident that this book really has no clunkers in it. It really is the best of the best. It's a very fine collection, and it's made up of some of the best cartoonists I think there are, including um, Nick Stevens and Raj Chaz, Bob Mankoff, and so many others. Well, it's such a, it's such a great read. I mean, there's, and we are biased. <laughs> As people who, you know, appreciate But I think they, you know, anybody um, really sort of, there's nothing more fun than reading, you know, an entire collection of really well put together, funny, funny cartoons like this, this, uh, these collections are. And now, have you always considered yourself a connoisseur of of good uh, panel cartoons? Or is this something that that came along later? It came along later. I mean, these are people I admire myself, uh, but I didn't appreciate it until much later. Initially, I was um, involved in illustration, and I was writing humor for different newspapers and magazines. And I just kind of fell into cartooning by accident, which I'd like to share the story. Absolutely. But I, first want, I just want to say, though, it, it is such a pleasure to be able to put this book together with people who I admire so much people like Michael Maslin and other people, they are the ones who inspired me and taught me at a cartoon. So this is like sort of a thank you to them, a thank you to people who kind of got me into the field, but it's also a thank you to bookstores. What happened was, is initially I was doing a book a few years ago in 2016 called Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores. And that book did quite well. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it's in multiple languages now all around the world. And it's a lot to do with the bookstores themselves promoting the book and helping support me. So they all asked me, well, what was I going to do next? And I was hoping it was going to be a sequel of bookstores. The bookstores I got cut from the first book, I thought I was going to be making a sequel. It turned out that I started working on other projects and other books, and that didn't come to be yet. Um, but I wanted to thank them. So I thought... This collection of cartoons about them is something they would really enjoy because it's, it's with a small publisher and this is not going to get me that 
you know, black pool in my living room or that oval driveway. This is a very modest project that's mostly about just doing it because you like doing it and because I wanted to do something for the bookstores. And they seem to appreciate it, and I'm, I'm very proud of it. But um, to go backwards, you asked me how I got into cartooning. Um, it started back in 2007 when I was finishing my History of the Snowman book. And I wanted an intermission in the book, so I got cartoons in the middle about snowmen. I picked out the best cartoons I thought there were. I went to the New Yorker, to the Cartoon Bank, and I spent a lot of money there. The book itself cost about $22,000 in photo rights and all the expenses as I traveled around the world for years doing research. And it took about seven years to do that book. And I spent a lot of money on the cartoons. And there was actually some space left. And I filled a couple of blank spaces with cartoons by myself. I'm not really a cartoonist. I was an illustrator, but I gave it a try. And then the New Yorker, as a thank you, they kind of took me out for my birthday to one of those famous New Yorker lunches that they have on the Upper West Side. I had already become friends with Sam Gross, who I included in that book, and he kind of took me out. We had a good time, and then I asked him if I could come back. I mean, the food was good, and you know, the company <laughs> was good. I was with Leo Cullum, and Gayam Wilson was there and a lot of people who, whose work I was familiar with. And I was just then appreciating cartoons as I was looking at cartoons for my book. So I started getting into it then. And I did one little brush with the New Yorker before that was, I did enter one of the caption contests. My roommate dared me to do that, and I came in second place. But that was the extent of it. I had no interest in doing cartoons up until this lunch when Sam Rose told me, that I could come back if I wanted to. But as a dare, he said, I'd like to see if you could do cartoons, you know, give it a try, come back next week with 10 cartoons. And I couldn't do it, it was too hard. It <laughs> took me two weeks to come up with 10 cartoons. And I did come back then two weeks later, and Sam was there at the New Yorker, and he took me into Bob Mankoff's office, introduced us, and then I met with Bob, and they actually purchased the first cartoon that I did. First cartoon I did for that batch. And it ran and was published. And I thought it was easy. I didn't know that how difficult it was because I assumed that the dozen people that were in the office waiting to go in and see Bob, I assumed that that was it. That there was, you know, those were the 12 cartoonists, I guess, who submit. And I assumed that I did poorly because I guess it meant that all of them sold two or three or four cartoons that day. And I was just, you know, I just sold one. Well, and I realized later it was beginner's luck. Well, yeah, I, I, that sound you just heard is uh, all the cartoonists listening to this saying, what? <laughs> Somebody brought him into Bob Mankoff's office. I've been trying to get in there for 10 years. Uh, but uh, but good for you. <laughs> I didn't realize the gravity of it. I just, you know, I was writing humor for different places. I was a main contributor for Spy, and uh, can I just say, uh, Spy is 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 very much missed. <laughs> I was a big uh, fan of Spy magazine. I feel like they were such a groundbreaker in so many aspects. Uh, you know, during that time, I actually did the piece that um, Trump cashed in that check 
for like 10 cents. Yes. The story that's been going around. Yes. People talk about that story. And uh, I, I had done hundreds of pieces for Spy, and that was sort of my home. And uh, so that's why I was sort of in a vacuum. I didn't realize about the other markets. I, I didn't grow up in a home that had the New Yorker. I grew up in the projects. Um, I didn't read. I, I didn't finish high school. Um, so there's always reasons why I really wasn't exposed to highbrow culture, and I had a lot of catching up to do, which I've been trying to do up until today. <laughs> you see, you seem to be doing a pretty good job. So, so Bob, I got to okay. ask you. We're, we're obviously, uh, you know, as a cartoonist and a New Yorker reader, I, I I'm fascinated by the cartoon contest. And um, what was your caption, and what was the number one caption? Do you remember? I don't. It was a throwaway thing. I'll I'll tell you. It was something to do with Danny Shanahan with um, Quasimodo going into um, a doctor's office. And it, I just submitted something stupid. I didn't even give it time. It was something like, you know, he's talking to the nurse saying, um, Dr. Quasimodo, the name rings a bell, or something like that. <laughs> just, you know, something. And what happened was, is later in the week, my roommate said to me, oh, you got a phone call from the New Yorker, something about you being runner-up. I didn't return the call. I looked later in the magazine, or it was sent to me or something. Someone shows me. I saw my name on it. And it didn't really mean much. I was a columnist at the time for a bunch of places. I was working for the New York Times. I just didn't even give it much thought. But looking back on it and sitting with Danny Shanahan on panels, and he's talking about that cartoon being the first cartoon for the first caption contest. Then I said, oh, yeah, you just repeated that caption I wrote. That was me. <laughs> so it kind of came full circle. And... And, and even the coincidence with, with Bob, I, I'm sorry I don't appreciate it more. I do now, and I, and I will say that it took me months before I sold my second cartoon, and it was a very humbling experience to learn that it's not that easy. And I had a lot of learning, too. I just simply wasn't part of that world. I just didn't realize it. That's excellent. Yeah, it's good. So let me ask you this, uh, just since we're talking about uh, cartooning, what are your techniques just do you approach it from old school with uh, pen and ink or are you using electronic media or have you done both well there's, there's two different things to talk about one is the ideas and, and how i come up with those how do i do my writing to write a joke or whatever i'm doing an assignment and that's like sort of random it's like different each time if i knew exactly what the formula was i'd be doing good cartoons instead of coming up with clunkers mixed in with some cartoons that I'm happy with. It's a mixed bag. Like sometimes it falls in my lap, and then other times the idea can marinate in the back of my head, and it can be improving over time. An example of this is I have this cartoon that's kind of well-known. It's, um, it's two guys wearing Rubik's Cubes as a head. One's the guru on the top of the mountain, and the other is the hiker seeking advice. And the guy seeking advice coming up, his head's all scrambled, and the guru, his Rubik's Cube is solved. Now, that <laughs> took me about two years to come up with because it started with something else. It actually began as a lawyer visiting his, um, his client in jail. And the guy in jail had a scrambled Rubik's Cube, and the lawyer had one that was solved. But I kind of knew that if I just waited that I can improve on that. I just let it sit, and I just kept on working on it and working on it. And sometimes that's the way my ideas come about. Um, 
other times it could be something that is done in the time it take, takes me to finish a shower. By the time I come out of the shower, it's already done in my head. I just have to put it on paper, and then I try to sell it. And in some cases, it sells. And in many cases, it doesn't. Now, as far as the physical part, the techniques, it's a mixed thing. But mostly, I work with a welcome tablet on a computer. And that's just because the, log- the logistics of my jobs are often very fast. They always have deadlines. A lot of times I'm live drawing, like if I'm live drawing the Oscars or the Super Bowl or doing the World Series, they want something within 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And it's just not practical to use traditional um, materials and scan it and, and clean it up and do that. I just go directly onto the computer. And I like to think that my computer work doesn't look like it's done by a computer, but it looks natural. On the other hand, when the deadline is not so pressing, like a cartoon for the New Yorker, I will use um, pen and ink, and I'll use a brush with watercolor, black watercolor paint, and just do a wash on watercolor paper, and do it the old way and scan it. Some of my color work I do for book covers and things like that are actually just old-fashioned oil paints that I've had since I was a kid, and just on a regular canvas, sometimes big, sometimes small. It depends on the job. But I really feel like well, the tools don't really matter. That's just a toolbox. I'm just reaching into it. And sometimes I grab a pair of pliers, and sometimes it could be a, a, a stylus, or another time it could just be a pencil. It actually doesn't make a difference. And I like to think that my work looks the same no matter what I use. And in, in the same hand, it looks like the same style. Of course, it changes from computer or whatever, but in general, it looks like I did it. Mm-hmm. Let me just follow up just something you said earlier with the uh, the guru on the mountain. Something that uh, sort of gets bandied about is some people feel like there's too much focus on the stock setting, you know, the guru on the mountain, the uh, the desert island. How do you feel about that? Do you feel it's fine to use the stock setting because we're constantly coming up with the original idea, or do you, th- do you think there's um, a sense that too many people fall into the stock setting? It's a balance. There's a language we use, a shortcut. We use it for everything. As an illustrator, let's say I'm doing something that's trying to depict love. I might use a heart. If I'm trying to depict charity, I might have someone on a series of ladders reaching down to help someone else. These are all shorthands and a way for the reader to immediately understand what I'm trying to communicate. But then it's up to me to add the twist. So I think adding the desert island, that's a shorthand. So is the guru in the mountain, stuff like that. Of course... You want some balance and break new ground, and you want to change the setting and setups, but uh, sometimes to get a message or a joke across, you use these shorthands. Does that answer the question? I, it's a fantastic answer, actually. I, I, I oh. like that. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Okay. And I, I was wondering, as the writer of our, our uh, little duo here, so for our comic strip, Pet Peeves, I come up I do the writing and and Dave does the drawing and I sort of come from a background of having written humor columns and that type of thing I'm curious what humor writing you know you're you're doing currently you know for whom and and what has inspired you to uh to do that in in recent times well I began just watching tv as a little kid and my favorite shows like the odd couple and stuff and these shows made me laugh and then I learned early on the attention I got making people laugh my first audience was at the dinner table with my mom and dad and my brother and sister. 
none of who thought that I was funny or think I'm funny now. <laughs> and they were the toughest audience in the world. And you go up there, and this is a family that just wouldn't give me anything. And I think it's because of that that it honed my skill, my skills. I think that I actually you know, tried harder and harder. Uh, by the time I was a teenager, I, I was a columnist for New York Newsday. And then shortly after that, for the Village Voice. And the people who inspired me would be people like Gary Indiana and other people who were kind of trailblazers in the way they wrote was just unorthodox. Um, I'll never forget this one piece in the Village Voice that Gary Indiana wrote for an art review. And he decided just to include his shopping list. It like came out of left field. So breaking these boundaries was really cool and really told me that you could do anything if it made people laugh. An example is right now I'm working on a squirrel operetta, which is being filmed and set to opera music, but my cast is made up of rodents and chipmunks and squirrels. <laughs> oh, squirrel, my God. <laughs> and I have the whole thing set up that way. Um, that's an example of like me feeling like I have that freedom. Um, as for other influences, like the typical, I mean, everyone always to say Mad Magazine, and, and National Lampoon, they were influences in a way. Uh, pop culture made me more so on TV and radio. I love Bob and Ray, and I love Bob Newhart, and, and that. But I did read Mad. It, it was nice that when I began working that I was a part of Mad, and I contributed to them. Um, I wouldn't say I was as passionate and gun ho as some Mad fans are. I know I love Mad, but at the same time, I know some people... The sun sets with Mad Magazine, and uh, I can't say that's the case with me. I was involved with Spy, and that's a different type of humor, a little bit different subtlety, a little more dry, like Bob and Ray's dry. That was maybe my my wheelhouse. Uh, and now writing now, uh, there's a few pieces I'm doing now. This morning I'm doing the piece uh, for the New York Times, World's Greatest Libraries, and that's a piece for the book review. Uh, next week, I'll be writing on the Writers' Conference, which is this great conference in New York City to help aspiring writers. That's something I am really big on, and I try. I do different talks, and I do different events for young writers who are trying to make it. And I'm, I belong to a group that puts on these free events. And the Writers' Conference next week is very helpful to those who are trying to break into the business and I'm going to cover that for LitHub um, website. That's a very well-known website for writers and literary types. And this is all for Writer's Digest, in which I'm a contributing editor. I do a lot of work for that magazine, which I totally um, advocate if you're starting out and you want an agent and you want you know, the nuts and bolts about the business. That magazine is invaluable. It's just a great tool to have and help you along. Um, and I'm writing some other pieces. Uh, there's a, about six different pieces I'll write at the same time. I'm working on a screenplay for one of my books. My, my book last Christmas, The Illustrated History of the Snowman, I was just approached by PBS, and they're asking me to write a screenplay based on the book and see if we can make a movie. So there's a few things, and I'm working on another screenplay, and so it's a, it's a few things. Excellent. Well, since you mentioned it, I have to ask you, how does one become one of the world's foremost experts on snowmen? Because that's what you are, I'm told. 
I am. I am in the world leading. I took over the torch from a, a, a professor from the Amsterdam University who was a professor in cultural history, specialty 15th century. And this man uh, taught me a lot. And he was an expert in this particular field where when the snowmen were very popular. For the, the snowmen were like the Beatles of the Dark Ages. People made snowmen all the time. It was a, it was a very popular activity for couples to stroll the streets as it was um, getting to be dawn. Um, anyway, as the, as the sun was setting, people would go after dinner, and they would go out to see what snowmen were made on street corners. And this was in um, Europe, mostly um, cities like um, Brussels. That was a very popular place for snowmen and, and places like that. So anyway, at that time, it wasn't considered child's play, but it was considered very much an adult activity. And people like Michelangelo had made snowmen and other famous artists. It was a distinguished uh, art form. And I contend in my book that it's actually one of the oldest forms of folk art. And I try to make a case that prehistoric man made snowmen. Now, how I got into the subject uh, was quite by accident. Um, when I was a columnist for different magazines and doing work, I was approached by agents and publishers if I had a book in me and they could represent me. And I didn't have a book, but I knew I. I knew that would be the next step in my career, that I wanted to grow, and that would be the next like, sort of you know, improvement to getting my work out there. But I didn't really know what type of book I wanted to write, except that I loved Sherlock Holmes, I loved mysteries, but at the same time I knew I didn't want to do a negative mystery, like a crime. So I was thinking like in terms of a positive question in life, like who told the first joke, or who made the first sandwich, Something like that. So I decided on who made the first snowman. And I came upon that because I went to stores to see what was not written about. I went in there to see what was missing. And one thing I saw was that there was no holiday books that were non-denominational except for like cookbooks. And um, I am Catholic, and I do celebrate Christmas, and I love Christmas. But I felt there was nothing for people who didn't celebrate that. And I didn't want... You know, my wife is Jewish, but I didn't want to do something Jewish. Of course, I want to do something that was for everyone. And that's why I hit upon snowmen. And another thing about snowmen was Batman just came out. And Tim Burton directed the movie with the star Michael Keaton. And that was something that was very, very surprising because it was based on the TV show. It was very campy. And here was a dark version of Batman. And I thought I could do the same thing with the snowman. Bring out all these secrets and find. And what I did find was that the snowman was actually a form of early pornography and political commentary in the Dark Ages. And an interesting connection. I believe Michael Keaton went on to play a snowman in a movie about a guy who, uh, Jack beca- Frost. who dies and becomes a snowman. Am I correct? I, I think that's right. That's yeah. exactly right. And I actually was in touch with like Roger E., who was going to be in the, in the movie that we were being made about the book, and he passed away. He called Jack Frost like the worst movie he ever reviewed. <laughs> that's saying something. Yeah. Uh, that's but, good. It better be something, right? <laughs> right. the best of something. Excellent. Well, Bob, b- before we go, I have to ask you, so p- where can people find the ultimate cartoon book of book cartoons and your other work? Um, well, I'm on Facebook, uh, Bob X. Stein, and that's spelled E-C-K-S-T-E-I-N. 
I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my books are in bookstores anywhere. You can always order it if you wish, uh, and a bookstore will be happy to do that. But my, my book is found in bookstores. I, I try to encourage people to purchase books from independent bookstores. That's another thing I've been working on in the last two or three years is raising awareness for independent bookstores. And I've done about 100 TV and radio uh, appearances uh, talking out against Amazon and explain why it's so important that we support these bookstores on Main Street because they are our sort of uh, intellectual hubs. It's where, you know, like-minded people conjugate in our towns and to have a place to, to learn and, and be introduced to books. And you'll be happy to hear that's exactly where Dave bought okay. your book. Okay. Independent books are one of my favorite. I'm not necessarily plugging anything here, but the uh, Brookline Booksmith, I got it at here in uh, in Boston. Fantastic independent bookstore that I love perusing. Cool. That's wonderful. Well, Bob Eckstein, thank you so much for being here on, on Strip Search. This was terrific, and, and we really appreciate you taking the time. No, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. And everyone else? Make sure to tune in next month for a new episode of Strip Search, the comic strip podcast. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>